afternoon. You are listening to The Scoop on CFRC 101.9 FM, CFRC.ca, and podcasting on Spotify and iTunes. I'm Kareem Mosna. Queen's University continues to reflect on the life and generosity of Dr. Isabel Bader as the arts champion and staunch supporter of the school. She died on Sunday, August 28th in Milwaukee. On Monday morning, Queen's University published a tribute to Dr. Bader, who was 95 years old. Dr. Bader and her late husband, Alfred, as a couple, were known as the largest benefactors to Queen's University, most notably for their donations of the Bader Collection of Art, a castle in England, and a center for the performing arts, all for the use of the university. Queen's University Principal Patrick Dean said the school has been very lucky to have remained an important piece of Bader's life for so long. Dean says Queen's was very fortunate to have been one of Isabel's priorities. She was so proud to be able to support the new home for the Bader Collection and the revitalization of the Agnes Etherington Arts Centre. Until the end of her life, maintained a fond and active interest in Bader College, its community, and its promise. While she was a graduate of the University of Toronto, Bader had long been a supporter of Queen's University, specifically its arts, music, and theatre programs, personally creating several bursaries for students in these fields of study. Tim Ford, Professor Emeritus of the Dan School of Drama and Music, says that unlike some benefactors at different institutions, Bader was truly, passionately involved with Queens and determined to make the arts accessible to all, particularly women. Ford said she was extremely bright, but also constantly humble about her role and contributions. She was one of my favorite people because she was fun-loving, warm-hearted, and a really lovely, lovely person. Ford added, she always asked to be called Isabel, not Dr. Bader or anything like that. When she could see that things needed more resources, she found a way to do it. Ford says, most obviously among our contributions, the Isabel Bader Center for the Performing Arts has untold implications on Queen's potential as an arts institution. He says, it's fitting that the building has come to be simply known as the Isabel and her impact will be felt at Queen's most abundantly through that space. Vice Principal of Advancement, Karen Bertrand, while on her way to Bader's funeral, said she and her traveling party have been fondly reminiscing on their memories with Dr. Bader. She said that Bader was a determined force in pushing for what she wanted and felt was needed, but was by nature a humble and gentle person. She says it's fair to say that she was this really extraordinary combination of what I would characterize as fierce determination and gentle humility. You saw it in how she conducted herself. You saw it in the kind of philanthropy that she selected, and you saw it in the wide diversity of people she engaged with. Dr. Tricia Baldwin, director of the Isabel Bader Center for Performing Arts, said that in recent years, Bader took a keen interest in supporting Indigenous expression in the arts. Baldwin said this for her was a creative breath of fresh air that put the spotlight on tremendously talented Indigenous artists and art forms that had been so unjustly suppressed. Isabel Bader was predeceased by her husband Alfred in 2018 and is survived by her stepsons Daniel and David, brother Clifford Overton, and extended family. This story courtesy of Owen Fullerton of YGK News. The City of Kingston's Family Physicians Recruitment Incentive Program has brought nine new doctors to the community. A City of Kingston release says the city is committed to ensuring the health of its residents, and it is demonstrating this commitment by working to address the ongoing shortage of family physicians in our community. In 2021, City Council approved funding for the Family Physician Recruitment Incentive Program. The program officially launched in January of this year, and since its implementation, it has attracted nine new physicians who will practice family medicine in the city. 
Mayor Brian Patterson says we're so happy to welcome our newest family physicians to the community. Providing access to health care and reducing waitlist times for residents has been a top priority for city staff and the results of their innovative recruitment efforts will benefit people across the community. To learn more about the recruitment program, I spoke with Craig Desjardins, Director of Strategy, Innovation and Partnerships with the City of Kingston. I just want to get a better understanding of um, sort of the like why this program was initiated so the program was absolutely market driven uh we heard from residents uh about the serious challenge and i alluded to in my comments you know some of the stories are just absolutely heartbreaking uh senior citizens that are without family physicians uh those who are seriously ill who you know can't get uh you know blood blood reports done you know all just a, a critical component of, of, of living of being a part of our community so council heard this um, council very kindly provided resources out of the tax base and uh, we've had just amazing support uh, and again we're, we're not experts this is not uh, this is not my day job it's not my staff's day job is, is physician recruitment but we've had a great uh, great team of, of, of family doctors Queen's University keys everybody's pulling together and uh, that's been the key to success sure well it's Explain to me exactly what in the program is are some incentives that are recruiting doctors to our community. So, so beyond beyond the money, as, and it's funny how the doctor said, "Well, yeah, the money's nice, but it, it's the other pieces." You know, one of the one of the components that's been incredibly successful is actually a relocation program. So, we have a program actually we've had it in, for a number of years in, in Kingston called the Dual Career Program, and it's basically a relocation person that helps someone coming into the community. It's been used; we've used it uh, at the city for, for sort of you know getting people settled, but you know finding a place to live. Getting, finding out where, where the hockey leagues are, finding out where, where you know, social groups, you know, having, getting people settled. We found that, you know, having a job and getting settled is one part, but if you're not happy in your life, you don't stay. And, you know, it, it, what ends up happening is they're here for 18 months and then they go back to where they came from. If you can get people settled, and that's the whole family, it's not just, it's usually the, the spouse or partner and the rest of the family. If we get them engaged in our community, they stay. And again, we have a great, we think we have a very great uh, uh, product to sell. You know, incredible uh, environments, nature, the water. Again, all of those pieces come together and our, our, the story we tell, again, is very powerful. Got it. So really just that, that those are some of the main elements that are helping pe bring people here. Um, okay, okay. And is there supports to help them get started? As I know, really, it's like being an entrepreneur when you're starting a, a family practice. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that has happened, though, in the last number of years is the, the model for practicing medicine has changed. They're, they're moving away from this notion of being these sole practitioners to being part of teams. So family health teams, and the, they have FOES and FAWS, all these sort of acronyms from the government. But the reality is working together is cheaper and more efficient and is a less of a stress on, on the individual doctors. And, and again, you know, one of the things I, did, I probably just should have mentioned as part of the value is having that network. You know, having Queen's University and the medical school, uh, there's a group called SEMO, which is an organization that supports education uh, you know, lifetime education of doctors. So again, when you when you have a patient, you don't know what's wrong with them. If you don't have anybody to ask, it's, it's I guess if you go to, you go to the internet. But having a network of colleagues to help you 
that's that's a pretty powerful selling feature, especially if you're a, you're a new doctor. And this like these networks are set up so when they when they arrive, they can access they're, this. They're here, they're here, and they're they're ready to access those immediately. So it's it's, it's an amazing uh, collaboration of, of of doctors. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for speaking with me, Craig. Yeah. Craig Desjardins, Director of Strategy, Innovation and Partnerships with the City of Kingston, telling us more about the Family Physicians Recruitment Incentive Program and some of what's involved in bringing doctors here and uh, the reasons why they stay here in our community. Nine new doctors are here in the City of Kingston. However, as uh, the release from the City notes, seven retired since the onset of the pandemic. I also spoke with Deborah Lefebvre, healthcare consultant with Deborah Lefebvre and Associates, and also a registered nurse. Yes. Cool. So I guess what I really want to get at is sort of, you know, there's there's challenges in bringing um, doctors to our community. Can you tell me a little bit about what some of those challenges are? You know, um, the physician recruitment issue has been highlighted as very important by the city of Kingston. So the city in partnership with Dr. Green, uh, Queen's University, uh, our uh, KEDCO, uh, various businesses have collaborated to create this incredible uh, tool um, to show how Kingston can be a tremendous area for physicians to move to, live in, play, work, and raise a family. Uh, there's tremendous resources here, uh, incredible ongoing and continuing education opportunities. So, and, and also with the incentivization of, of the financial piece, it just makes it an easy choice to stay and move to Kingston. Tell me about the incentivization piece. Uh, the City of Kingston has uh, identified $2 million uh, to uh, support a physician's uh, decision to move here. And I, uh, Craig can speak to the logistics specifics of that, but I believe he mentioned uh, $100,000 over five years. Mm -hmm. To each individual physician? Yes. Okay. Yes. That, it, well, I know when I spoke with Craig, he certainly talked also about beyond just the work itself, sort of what Kingston can offer as well is also important to, to support a lifestyle. Absolutely. As, as I mentioned, uh, the ongoing education, the professional uh, partnerships, uh, you know, the school system, Queen's University, it, it's on the waterfront. There's just so much that Kingston has to offer to, to physicians and their families. And I mean, Queen's University and being a part of this as well, I mean, this certainly, I would think, recent graduates, I mean, this would be also a great place to start a career in, in, in as, a, as a physician. Yes, indeed. We heard from two, uh, two physicians who are, well, one is from Kingston, Dr. Jen, uh, moving back here, attracted back to Kingston for various reasons, and then Dr. Sean, who is uh, a, phys a family physician, uh, working in addictions, uh, so it, it's it's a lovely opportunity to, as as we mentioned, to work, live, and play here in Kingston with all the tremendous resources and support that we offer. Keys as well was a uh, a, a huge uh, support in the recruitment piece. Mm -hmm. it is, is there support for challenges maybe in starting a practice as well up here? 
Well, my understanding is with the nine physicians that are moving here uh, and uh, setting up practice here is they will be taking over nine existing practices from nine retiring physicians mm -hmm. and then adding into that some 1,500 unattached patients and given a couple of years in which to build up their practice to that ideal roster number size of uh, roughly 12 to 1,300, yes. Yeah, and we would like to encourage all unattached patients to register with Healthcare Connect. Very, very important to do so. And what would you say to perhaps a, a doctor who might be um, trying to think of where they'd wanna start their practice? I would say welcome. Uh, I would say get in touch uh, with Craig Desjardins, uh, Dr. Mike Green at Queen's University, Craig is with the City of Kingston, and explore what it means to live here in Kingston. Explore what it means to set up your practice, to provide you know, primary care to the citizens of Kingston's. Come and see our waterfront. Enjoy all of what it means to live here in Kingston. I moved to Kingston. 20 years ago and I have enjoyed every moment of it. We have a family of four. Uh, I, as I mentioned, I'm a registered nurse and the opportunities that exist not only for my family and my husband but also my children are tremendous. Health consultant and registered nurse Deborah Lefebvre telling us more about the Family Physician Recruitment Incentive Program. You are listening to The Stoop on CFRC 101.9 FM, CFRC.ca, and podcasting through Spotify and iTunes. I'm Kareem Mosna. And a story that's been getting a lot of coverage here on The Stoop in recent months will be before Kingston City Council tomorrow night, as the decision will be made whether to accept Patry's request for a ministerial zoning order, which would allow for Patry's condo development property on the former Davis Tannery lands. Back in August, four of six councillors voted against the proposal and the MZO at the city's planning committee meeting. The MZO would mean amendments to the city's official plan and zoning bylaws allowing for residential development on the land of Two River Street and 50 Orchard Street. Several environmental groups have voiced their opposition to Patriot's proposal, including most recently the David Suzuki Foundation, who in a letter to Mayor Brian Patterson wrote, Current municipal efforts should focus on exploring remediation initiatives for the site rather than developing it. A comprehensive remediation plan that takes into account the remediation of groundwater, soil, and sediments should be developed before any development occurs. We urge the city not to approve development until at a minimum the full anticipated ecosystem impacts of the proposed development are understood, documented, and a remediation plan is developed and considered. The Canada Foundation for Innovation recently invested $120 million into two Queen's University-affiliated research projects. The first being the Canadian Cancer Trial Groups, which is based here at Queen's, is set to receive $20 million to support research networking testing innovations in cancer treatments, while Snow Lab, an internationally renowned research facility which is based near Sudbury, that studies dark matter and astroparticle research will be receiving $100 million in funding. To learn more about the fascinating work Snow Lab does and what the funding will enable, I spoke with Snow Lab's Executive Director and Professor of Physics at Queen's University, Dr. Jody Cooley. Okay, so Snow Lab, uh, you're based in the Sudbury area, if I'm not mistaken. That is correct. We're, uh, we are in the greater Sudbury area. Uh, we 
um, have space in the Creighton mine. Uh, we, we have a, a clean room there. So, uh, yeah, so we're very thankful to them, obviously, for, for being such great hosts. Uh, what's your affiliation with, uh, with Queens? Okay, so um, I'm the executive director of Snow Lab, and I can currently have a faculty position at Queens University. Makes sense. Okay, so uh, you, you you study uh, Snow Lab is a study of dark matter and the neutrino particle, uh, astroparticle research. For those not familiar, tell me a little bit about the the work that Snow Lab does. Oh, absolutely. So mainly we do do physics, as you were saying, uh, astroparticle physics um, in particular. Um, so dark ma- our dark matter research is focused on trying to identify. Um, what the 85% of the missing mass in the universe is. And when I say missing, what I mean is is that we know that that mass is out there. We can see um, its effects on objects we look at at in the night, like galaxies, um, the rotation, how galaxies rotate, things like this, uh, gravitational lensing. Um, They all point to this idea that there is some mass that uh, we can't see it. It's not visible to us. And so, uh, so we call the matter dark because it doesn't, you know, give off light. So we see its gravitational effects, but we haven't yet been able to observe any of it here on the surface of the Earth. Um, and so we're, we've got a, a number of experiments that are just trying to identify exactly what is this dark matter, what are its characteristics, um, and trying to identify it here on Earth um, because this dark matter is actually, now I know I'm really rambling, I apologize, um, but the dark matter is um, all around us in a halo. And by us, I mean like our whole galaxy is surrounded by a halo of dark matter. Uh, so it's constantly going through us. And so we have a bunch of experiments uh, trying to detect that dark matter um, that's in this halo around our galaxy. Um, the other sort of set of physics experiments that we have going on um, are these things called neutrinoless double beta decay. And basically, um, that's like trying to understand better um, radiation and radioactivity. Um, neutrinoless double beta decay is, is one type of radio, radiation that you can get, radioactivity that you can get, um, and we're hoping to learn more about um, a particle called the neutrino uh, through studying this process, which, again, helps us also understand better um, radioactivity. In addition, we also have experiments going on in biology underground. I don't know if you knew this or not, but um, we have a set of experiments that are um, trying to understand um, how radiation affects, like, cell development. So we know that if you get too much radiation, that's bad for you, right? It can cause cancer and things like this. Um, we know that radiation has played some role um, in, in the development of our species because even on the surface of the Earth, we get radiation from the cosmic rays that are raining down on us all the time. The environment underground gives us actually a unique opportunity to say what does radiation, what ha- how does radi- how would like too little radiation um, affect cell development, um, which is which is kind of neat. Some very fascinating stuff that I'm sure would be a whole other form of discussion. But let, let's get back to uh, the Canadian Foundation for Innovation Award. I mean, $100 million is pretty significant. I'd like to know a bit more about where this funding will go towards. I understand it's supporting uh, astroparticle research. Tell me a bit about what you hope to do uh, with this significant amount of funding. 
Absolutely. So this is a loan of funding that we will get over six years. So we're not getting it all at once. It is a, it is a, a longer term uh, duration of which we, we will spend the money over. But essentially, you know, we talk generally about the types of experiments that we have going on. And so actually in our lab, um, not only do we have these experiments going on, but the experiments are at different stages. So we have some experiments that are running right now, that they're up, they're taking data, and they need um, scientific and technical support uh, to stay operating and stay operating stably. So we have um, some people and, and some of the money goes to supporting those experiments. We have another set of experiments that are sort of the next generation, and these are experiments that, um, that, that essentially are under construction. And so they're not yet to the point where they're taking data, um, but they're being constructed. And so we have um, engineers, scientists, uh, technicians of, of various levels who, who work on those experiments and, um, and work to help those uh, experimentalists uh, construct their experiments. And then um, we have like another set of experiments that we're planning for out in the future. So like, you know, these, start, these experiments are, are longer on the longer time horizon. And those experiments um, are sort of like we call them next generation experiments. And so what we do for them um, is we um, help them to do some of their pre-planning of what do they need or what would it take for them to go into space underground. Um, and we develop some of the support structure um, for receiving those experiments, you know, when it's time for them to come. And so it's a long variety of things. I mean, it, it's just a, a large, you know, it's sort of a large scope of, of different types of experiments um, at different stages that we support here at Snow Lab. Uh, a point that the uh, Minister of Innovation uh, with Science and Industry with the Government of Canada, Francois-Philippe Champagne, made in his announcement of this funding is uh, making sure Canada is equipped to support the next generation of researchers. Is, is that uh, a big part of this, you know, uh, in terms of uh, perhaps uh, students, recent graduates finding opportunities through Snow Lab? Well, a- absolutely. We, we host at any time something like 30 undergraduate students. Um, here at Snow Lab, and so these are our students who apply through a process, and then they they spend some time with us um, at Snow Lab, and you know the the students that we get you know changes over, uh, I think it's about every four or six months. So we get we get new students who come in. Some of them stay a little bit longer, and we'll work multiple terms. We just finished up our summer term um, with undergraduate students. We also um, support and host students. Um, who are either working on their graduate degrees, so they're working on master's or Ph.D. degrees, and um, faculty, uh, you know, from all over Canada and actually from all over the world. Um, So a a lot of the experiments that we have underground are actually international efforts. Uh, They're too expensive for Canada to to afford on its own. And so we um, work on trying to solve some of these puzzles uh, with international collaborators who who bring things, uh, who bring, you know, money and they bring people uh, into the Sudbury region as well. And uh, you mentioned it briefly uh, before we got into the official interview, but you mentioned you are also a Queen's faculty member? Yes, that's true. As of, as of August 1st, so when I started my appointment, um, it's a, a secondment that I am here out at Snow Lab working as the executive director, but at the same time, um, I do hold a faculty position at Queen's University. And what would that role be? Just uh, for I'm a professor of physics. Excellent. Okay. Special thanks to Executive Director of Snow Lab. Special thanks to Dr. Jody Cooley 
executive director of Snow Lab and professor of physics at Queen's, telling us more about the work Snow Lab does and how $100 million in funding from the Canada Foundation of Innovation will support their, out of this world, astral particle research. This is The Scoop on CFRC 101.9 FM, cfrc.ca, and podcasting through Spotify and iTunes. I'm Kareem Mosna. Be sure to join me tomorrow at 5 for Citizen K. I'll be speaking with documentary filmmaker Robbie Hart about his film Icebreaker, revealing some never-before-heard stories and context of a defining period in our history, the 72 Summit Series. That's the iconic hockey games between Canada and the Soviet Union. Icebreaker, co-produced by Robbie Hart and Peter Raymond, will be shown at the screening room here in Kingston this Friday night. Also coming up tomorrow on Citizen K, Queen's University students weigh in on the COVID policy where proof of vaccination is not required and masks are optional. We'll get their thoughts tomorrow on Citizen K at 5 o'clock right here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Thank you for listening to The Scoop this week on CFRC 101.9 FM, broadcasting from Kingston, Ontario, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee people. You can find previous episodes of The Scoop by going to cfrc.ca.